welcome back to Out to Lunch, the podcast for people who love their juicy anecdotes served up with even juicier conversation. This is Series 3, and normally you'd find me on a pavement stood outside a top restaurant about to indulge in their menu with today's guest. Sadly, that's not to be. This is 2020, and lockdown means we've had to think of new ways to bring you the show. So welcome to in for lunch. Me and my guest sat at home. I order a surprise takeaway for them and something for myself and we sit down and we eat and talk, talk and eat. Surprising things are said over a good meal, however it happens to be taken, as you'll soon discover. Today, to launch Series 3, I'm video linking and dining with none other than the singer, pop star, songwriter, George Ezra. And I got a call and I said, hello mate, do you mind if I ring you back? And he said, would you just quickly, how would you feel about having Ian McKellen in the video? And I kind of just told him to fuck off, like, stop wasting my time. So, George, it's brilliant to see you. I am seeing you. And I think I have to ask you, given the Phone a Friend podcast you do, how are you doing? How are you? Well, see, this is where I have to get a gauge of how you're doing as well. I find that every conversation I'm having at the moment, I'm wary not just to jump in saying, I'm great. Because I'm aware, you know, that might not be echoed. Okay, so, so the good thing is, let's be slightly smug and privileged together. I'm fine. I'm I'm in a okay. nice house out, uh, in Brixton, South London. Got a garden, got my, my kids, I'm working. So I'm absolutely fine. So don't worry about me. How are you? I'm good. And I, I'm kind of... I'm into my fifth week now. And I'm in my place alone and worryingly fine as someone that relies on kind of human contact as much as I do or thought I did that's the interesting thing is I've always would have said oh no I really you know rely on and maybe I do I'm on the phone a lot more that's for sure but I'm starting to think how long is this healthy for how long you know is six weeks the cutoff um is is seven weeks I think we're going to find out is the truth I have to say (laughs) You know, I, I do my research. I read a lot about the people I'm going to talk to. And although you say you, you thrive on human contact, there's lots of stories of you doing things solo. Like, you know, you go off on trips by yourself. I'm almost wondering whether you're better suited to being in lockdown than being a pop star. I think I'm better suited to a lot of things than being a pop star. That's something <laughs> that I've learned the hard way. But in the past, I've done... For the first record, I travelled around Europe on trains by myself... For the second record, I went and lived in Barcelona by myself for a month. But I've always seen it as a test and deliberately because it's something I don't, I don't know, I wouldn't choose to do almost. So it's, it's in a way of, there was one occasion as well on the last record that I did 10 days in Norfolk and that was in this cabin and the catch was it had no electricity. Now, the, the only reason I say this is because everyone I mentioned it to is saying, why would you, you know, knowing you, why are you going to do that? But the reason is because kind of four or five days in, I always find when I'm left to my own devices that it's almost as if my thinking changes or my pa- pa- and creatively, it's like the way I approach things changes in some way. By the way, your food is about two minutes away, I'm here to tell you. Okay, I, I can amazing. see the little bike coming round. I won't say where. Okay, we'll, amazing. We'll keep your location um, quiet. Although you've already admitted that this lockdown, you know, you've tried to write 
stuff about it and it's not necessarily happened i have to say i don't think that's a bad thing if i'm totally honest yeah i I tried in as much as there's it's almost as if i put a pressure on myself to say well you know this and this was in the first week or two and and i use this word kind of lightly in that it was almost as if the novelty hadn't worn off of the situation and i know novelty is kind of a perverse word to put on this situation but it did feel as if there was a it was new and unknown and in that I kind of asked myself well I wonder if there's something to write about for me and I I just it all sounded a bit well, I don't know. There's, a, there's, there's yeah. a big conversation that goes on. I'm on, on my private Facebook page. There's a lot of writers there. People like me have written novels. And, and we're all actually terrified that there's going to be a sudden outpouring of really, really piss poor books written by people in yes. isolation who suddenly think their own opinions locked down yeah. are somehow important. When the, I can't tell you, Jay. You just watch. In a year's time or something, the amount of albums that are going to be released where there's a kind of documentary that goes alongside them where they filmed zoom conference calls and stuff and it's you know we made the album in lockdown there will be an awful a lot there'll be an awful amount of that but uh, as so far none of them will be by george ezra (laughs) well well so this and this is something that i've really parked when it comes to kind of talking about how it's affected me there was and still is but it's changed considerably there was the project for the next record I've always pinned a record to a project and I was supposed to leave seven days ago for this particular you know journey I'm going to be a bit coy about talking about it because I still whether it happens or not and we are documenting our conversations around that and we are documenting because because for the first time the the trip that I was planning to take for the record was going to be documented Um, and I've got two of my closest friends that I actually met in Bristol when I was studying are filmmakers and you know one of them in particular I tour with and it was kind of like well should we not document this as a fan of an artist I think the the, there's one thing me kind of telling people oh I, I took this journey to write this record and then there's another thing to to hear that story and then be able to kind of watch a documentary around it I think is um could be amazing so we'll have to wait and see where that ends up um george i can see that your food is three minutes away so if you want to pop off and hang out by the door a chap should turn up (laughs) okay amazing thank you jay so george you should have quite a bag of takeaway (laughs) there i thought i I thought i'd it's huge i thought i'd fill your fridge i thought i'd fill your fridge you are so welcome to fill Uh, my fridge you know we we always send out dietaries and the only thing that really came back from you was that you don't eat meat or much meat have you gone totally veggie these days more or less i'm i can't i feel as if people are quite tribal about their kind of dietary requirements now and i feel as if there'll be people say i occasionally will eat meat both my parents are vegetarian and were the whole time i was growing up and so we ate vegetarian at home but it was never put on to me if that makes sense so well what i decided was to go lebanese for you so there is a place, really not far away, called uh, Green Valley. 
I don't know if you know Green Valley. There's a couple of them. They are the most spectacular Middle Eastern supermarkets. There's one up near the Edgware Road, which is where a lot of the Middle Eastern community is in London. And then this one nearer you. So you've got a bunch of meze. Can I just interrupt quickly, Jay? Yeah, I, yeah. Almost, I don't mind what's in, because I've seen that there's baklava. And as long as there's that, it anything else is fine. I looked at the desserts and I thought, if you're going to do this food, there has to be baklava, which is just one enormous sugar hit, isn't it? I'll tell you briefly what you've got. Um, so you've got a mutabal, which is flame-grilled aubergine with tahini and lemon juice, and then a tabbouleh, which is a salad of cracked wheat and parsley and mint, a brilliant salad. And then pumpkin kibe, which are little deep-fried wheat croquettes with chickpeas and walnuts and onions. And then um, I could have just got you falafel, but they had falafel popcorn. I just like the sound of falafel popcorn, <laughs> yeah. which I'm assuming is lots of little it falafel in a tahini like sauce. With, oh, they really are yeah, tiny, yeah. aren't they? Oh, perfect. Um, and then a moussaka casserole, which is sliced aubergine with chickpeas and tomato sauce with vermicelli rice. And I honestly am not expecting you to get through all of that. But if we can fill your fridge for lockdown for a few days, you know. That's that? It sounds like a challenge, so I'm, I'm having to take on the challenge. <laughs> this might be your longest episode yet, as I just work my way through this. We can deal with that. Have you been getting many takeaways since well, you've been I was just down? about to say, this is so exciting, because I've, I've been trying to navigate my way through it all and work out what the best thing to do is. So I've got some friends that are of the school of thought, well, takeaway is better, because you actually don't have to come into contact with anybody you're not going to the supermarket. But then my worry with that is, firstly, I quite enjoy cooking. And secondly, it's all well and good to tell yourself you're going to get a moussaka and a salad every time that you order takeaway. But the reality yeah, of that, happens, no, exactly, that's the thing. So, th th so I've had one, I think, in five weeks takeaway. And it's just, this has just made me realise how much I take for granted eating out. You and me both. <laughs> yeah, yeah, certainly. Um, I'm going to start dishing up. Oh, I think you should. I think you should. Hold that thought. My food has arrived. I'll be back in a sec. Thank you. Oh, my word. So the story here is that I actually have rather less access to places down where I live. So I found a, um, an interesting place called the uh, Limette Bistro. They were meant to open on April the 1st. Obviously couldn't, so they've just gone to delivery. And it's kind of Mediterranean fusion. Um, George and Violet, who run it, are both from Romania, but they're working with a cocktail bar called Scion London. And they do similar food to the thing you've got. But I think I put in an order, I talked to them, and I think he sent me a few other hey. things <laughs> on top of my order. It does look like you've got um, one or two... <laughs> A month or so before lockdown was put in place, my dishwasher broke. And it was one of those things no. where it was like, oh, I'll get round to that, I'll get round to that, I'll get round to that. And then obviously the lockdown's put in place, it's like, oh, I never got round to that. And so what I've been doing to kind of minimise my washing up time, doing like one big cook on a Monday or a Sunday, and then either freezing it or putting it in the fridge and then having that each night. It's very rock and roll. <laughs> yeah, that's one thing you'll learn as we go on. But I, I think that I'm okay with kind of having the same meal each night for a while, but seeing this has made me realise how, you know, boring it's been. I've been doing... My sister sent me over her recipe for veggie chilli, which lasted me a week, which was great. And then I did a kind of black dal curry one week, which was really lovely. I didn't check how many, how many the recipe fed, and I did this red lentil 
ragu that has lasted almost over a week and I'm just so sick of eating it now. I, it's so much so that last night... And let me give you permission to stop eating it then. <laughs> yeah, but so much so last night I did like two portions in one just to get it done and, you know, called it a day. To get yeah. it done. I have to show you, I've got a roasted carrots with hummus and then I've got some za'atar spiced pumpkin with feta. So what you got there? Oh, you've made a plateful. Well, how, how do I do for presentation? I mean, it's slipping all over the place, but I've done my best to try and make it look as good as possible. It, it looks fantastic. If you lift it just a little bit higher, because I think Darby's about to get a screenshot and I'll do one over here. <laughs> there we go. Excellent. <laughs> So, no more disturbances. We've got our food. Let me take you back to growing up in Hartford. Your parents were both teachers. Was music a thing in your family when you were growing mm. up? It was. I feel really fortunate that it was, but in a very... It was only ever a hobby. So my dad, you know, played the guitar and would sing his favourite Dylan songs. And it was... There was always music in every room. Whether it be my older sister... You know, I was lucky to have an older sister that was interested in pop culture and what was going on. So it meant that, you know, we grew up in this time where the charts were indie bands and it was that tail end of the Libertines and Baby Shambles. And then that kind of, it was Razor like the Arctic Monkeys. I mean, I'd, it's pointless for me trying to listen because there was just an abundance of these bands and I just loved it. And, and were your parents listening to them as well? Yeah, but I never thought that, like my, I think... I never found that bad either. Like, I've got really fond memories of kind of Jamie T coming on in the car with Dad and him, being, you know, and, and us sharing those things. I remember my dad teaching me a few guitar chords. Now, the first song he taught me was Knocking on Heaven's Door. And more or less, they're the same chords that I wrote Budapest with. And it's this thing where I just, I kind of, once I could write songs over these chords, I never felt an urge to progress with guitar playing. It was like, I, I never, and I don't, I don't dislike that. It was almost like that. It, it was me saying to myself, well, the bit you enjoy is the, the writing and the, the singing. This is just a tool to get you to that thing. At what point did the thought enter your head that this was the thing you could do? Because you've talked about not being particularly academic, mm. which I find kind of interesting because, you know... I know your work and the things you're interested in. You strike me as quite a thoughtful chap. Mm. When did you start thinking maybe I could do music as a as a career? Did, are, are you the accidental pop star? I would say I am. Maybe a lot of people would say that about of themselves. I'd have to caveat that by saying all it is, it's a result of saying yes to things. You know, I was 18 and in <laughs> Bristol and someone says, do you want to go to Bath tonight to support this person? Yeah, I mean, like, can you, you can yes. you get me there? Cool. And then that escalates. Uh, ex except after, was it after GCSEs, then you went to Bristol to go to the a music yeah, institute music there? Yeah, music college there. But I, I was still doing that under the impression that I would become a teacher. I, I, that's, oh, was that the plan? More loosely. It was kind of like, do this until someone taps you on the shoulder and says, and what's happening now kind of thing. And then I was always comfortable with the idea of me being a teacher. You told a story recently on your podcast, Phone a Friend, which is your conversation with your mate Ollie, essentially around mental health issues, where you had this great concern about being told you possibly would struggle in the sixth <sighs> room. And you became very concerned about 
what impact that would have. And you ended up in a branch of Pizza Express in Hartford. Other other pizza restaurants will be available again. Weeping in distress mm. at the at the thought of this. Mm. Now, you've talked very openly in a brilliant way about mental health issues. Do you think you were or are a, a fragile chap in certain places, that there are fissures that the world gets into? One thing I would always describe myself as is sensitive. Now, I don't know if I'm any more sensitive than anybody else or if it's just that I'm comfortable with with how sensitive I am about things. I think that my interest in talking about mental health as this umbrella thing has always been and will always be I'm just convinced that it, it, it it's a spectrum that everybody sits on and at different places in their life and I, I don't think it needs to be anything bigger than that other than people need to feel comfortable about talking about it obviously on that spectrum there's where does mental health become mental illness and where does anxiety become agoraphobia or you know completely where do all of these things meet and I don't feel as if that's my job to to know the answer to those things what I do know is that I found it quite liberating knowing that I have people in my life I can talk to about these things I think like I don't wake up in the morning and think to myself I would love to talk publicly at length about my own experiences but then I also know that the reason I have an understanding about what it is I experience is because other people have spoken about it. And so not in a superhero role, but I do feel as if, well, if I'm able to talk kind of candidly about it, there might be the equivalent of 14-year-old me that goes, huh, that musician I like has just explained something I I relate to and it could save them maybe a bit of worrying that, you know, I, I didn't have maybe. And... and the whole point of the podcast Phone a Friend is that Ollie is somebody that I went to school with. He's not somebody, he's a very close friend of mine, but he... <laughs> he's just a bloke. Yeah, yeah. He, um, we started to talk between the two of us and I just, I put it, to, he's a musician as well, Ollie, and I just said to him, how would you feel about recording these conversations and would you be interested in sharing them? because I think people might enjoy listening to them. I don't know, with something like 15 episodes in, and I absolutely love it. And I love hearing that people's feedback to the show, because I think a lot of our competitors, when it comes to podcasts about mental health, they do a very good kind of textbook voice, and you might find that you feel... That's not the... You might find that this might help <laughs> yeah, you in some yeah. way. But it's not a reality. That's not... Uh, no, it's you t- you're t- two blokes talking to each other with a shared well, history. And I'd say 70% of the show is nonsense, in my opinion, because... Oh, no, absolutely, <laughs> mate. I, I would yeah, agree. <laughs> it's, it's kind of... We've known each other since we were 16, and we make each other laugh an awful lot. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. 
Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, nothing. No tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Um, so I've just had a pumpkin spiced Ooh. with za'atar, which was fantastic from Limit Bistro. Uh, what have you had on your plate? I want to know how it is. The thing I'm loving are these falafel popcorn bits. There's something really nice about them. What's the main dish that I'm eating? So the main dish uh, should be a moussaka casserole of sliced aubergines yeah. with chickpeas and tomato sauce with vermicelli. So this is amazing. And the aubergine in it is like the perfect kind of... It kind of feels meaty in a way. Does that make sense? Oh, well, aubergine's good. Yeah, at, it, it, you know, it, it, it has that quality Yeah, and to I it. appreciate that. It doesn't pretend to be meat, but it's very satisfying yeah. and solid. You wrote a song called Budapest. Was it just because you like the word? <laughs> it's a great mm. word. This trip uh, interrailing around Europe... I made a really loose plan of the cities I wanted to visit and Budapest was the only city I didn't make it to. And so I must have been 18 or 19 and started to take quite a long run up to the idea of writing my first love song, as it were. And you kind of go, how do you tackle this without it being, you know, like a Hallmark card? When so many other people have done it before. <laughs> yeah, one or yeah. two. And I thought, well, why don't you list things that you don't have that you'd give up for somebody? Because that... I didn't have anything, you know, and that to me is like a kind of tongue-in-cheek, quite sweet way of, of approaching that. And yeah, I hadn't ever been to Budapest, I'd missed it, and so I started it with my house in Budapest, obviously not owning any real estate in Budapest. Um, so, I, you know, I like that. You've got this baritone mm. voice, it's down there, and, and not all your speaking voice is that low, and your laugh is quite <laughs> up there. Um did how much did you have to do to find that voice? Was there any training for that, or did it just come no, to because it's a fantastic voice? Thank you, man. I think like there's this relationship between this this blue stuff that I was listening to, and on the back of this Lead Belly record, it said his voice was so big you had to turn your record player down compared to other vinyl. And so at 15, you kind of go, "God, that's amazing." Um, and at the same time. A really good reference would have been the Kings of Leon, which were like my favourite band for years and years. And I just wasn't aware of who I was. I didn't feel as if I shouldn't try and sing that way. You try, you try and emulate the people that you admire. And so these people were who I admired. And so I think you can hear on my first record that it's far more gravelly. And I, I think that in a world where there are too many male floppy-haired singer-songwriters, everybody's trying to do their thing that says at the open mic, I'm different. And I think I found a way to have a bigger voice. And so that was my kind of tool. But then on my second record, I think you can hear it smoother. It's less gravelly and it's kind of, I learned how to... Well, I'm delighted because if you had stuck with the gravelly thing, you'd be having operations for polyps in about two uh, Oh, years I think time. I would have had them. Uh, I'd, I'd... The damage would yeah, be Yeah, huge. yeah, yeah. And th th there's nothing about how I sang on my first record, certainly while touring, that was healthy or, you know, good singing. It was just, 
They're the right notes, but technically I was ripping... And the amount of shows I had to cancel as well. This brings you to another point. You know, you said you were a sensitive sensitive Mm. chap. Was there no point where anybody around you, your parents or your older sister... I know your older sister sort of tours with you and uh, manages that aspect of your life. Where anybody said, George... You're not the man for this. This is this is a complicated world. Or were you all kind of, yeah, do it. And if it doesn't work out, do something else. No, there was none of that. But because there's nobody in my family when I started that had any reference. So I remember actually a very inspiring conversation with my dad. When I'd come home from some support tour at the back of a van. And I was obviously quite fried by it all. And he just said, look, for the first time you're experiencing something that I don't have experience in. And so I will be here for whatever I can help with, but kind of bear with me while I try and catch up with everything that's going on. Yeah, and there was another time that stands out after a particular tour in the US supporting, which I really hadn't enjoyed. And you start going, "What? why is it I'm doing this? Because I, a year ago, I loved playing guitar on stage. And I've just found that really exhausting. So what's the... Why is it you question yourself? What are your goals here? And he just said, George, on the outside, it looks as if you're living everything you would ever want to live. I just want you to know that it's it's completely okay for you to feel every emotion under the sun around all of this. And you don't, don't be scared to feel it. And, it. and it meant a lot because actually that's what I needed to hear. There's a guilt that comes with from the outside, I am living the life, and I appreciate that. And from the inside, I am. I'm, you know, most of the time, I'm aware that I'm living my idea of, you know, the well, certainly work-wise, it's ideal. I love it, but but there are times where it's not so fun, and that's okay. By the way, how how are the kibbe? I was really interested in those. Those are the little. They should be sort of slightly yeah, oval. Yeah, literally just as you said that. I've unders. got a bit on here. They're amazing. They've got spinach. Or something inside as a treat. I've moved on to chicken thighs marinated in yogurt and lemon with a fatouche salad. Um, it's char grilled and there's a sort of sweet sour pepper mix on. There. It's really good. I mean, it's a tragic story that this place didn't get to mm. open on April the first, and I hope they make it through because uh, Limit Bistro, West Dulwich. Um, I'm uh, enough respect. One of the other things that it does strike me is this all happened to you so young. Mm. You've got to write about something when not necessarily enough something has happened. Mm. So you've been very active in going off and having experiences, the classic being staying at Tamara's, going to Barcelona. You talk about that on stage. Is that something you think about, now I have to do a thing, I'm going to go and do something to experience stuff? Yeah, it is. Definitely on the first record, because like, it makes me laugh so much that certainly in pop music, you're relying on kids you know, the, 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 whoever's releasing their debut album, they're going to be somewhere between the... I mean, Billie Eilish just released, and she's... And this is just an example, but she's 16, 17. She's 18. Yeah. And when she first started it, and you go, you're going to be somewhere between that and my, uh, my age now, and you're still figuring it out. I assume everyone's figuring it out forever, but there's something even more so about that. Those years where you're still concerned about what people think of you and and how do I... It's a funny... That never stops, No, 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 I, 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 that's... A, <laughs> I know yeah, what you mean. it's the... I was just aware of... It, don't be scared to admit that you need to go out and experience some things. Do you 
stand outside yourself almost and say, oh, I'm having an experience now. This thing no. is happening. Or is it after the fact that you go, you know what, there's a song, there's an, there's an experience in there that I could represent in song? Yeah. What I do is I try and journal. The, so if it's a particular trip, I will journal every day. And those journals will kind of drift between just factual what's happened during that day to lyrics, to little stories, to doodling, to, you know. And then when I get home, I would post that journal to Joel, who I write with. He would read through it first and give me some time away from it because I'm too involved in it. He'd take notes on bits that stand out to him. Then I'd get it back. I would read through it. I'd go up. And it might just be one word on one day. Where, Like you say, Budapest is a cool word to say. It's, it's a satisfying word to say. Yeah. It, it might be one sentence. It might be that there's a verse there that's like, oh, that's a starting point. Yeah, I, I'm the world's slowest writer, I think. So is, uh, I'm just curious. Uh, some songwriters have a whole bunch of other stuff in a mental suitcase that hasn't made it onto the albums. Or are these, you know, uh, are, are the albums um, yours, you know, Wanted on the Voyage, Staying at Tomorrow's, is that basically what you've written so far? Or are there a bunch of other things lying around that you don't want to talk yeah, about? Yeah, there's a bunch of awful songs. Gerard <laughs> um, was one of my lecturers who would stress the point of don't be precious about... Th there's a thing that writers do where their last piece of work is their best in their eyes. So they finish a song and they go... They run home to their partner or to their friend or to their... And you go, listen to this. You won't believe this, you know. And then give it six months and you'll look back on it and go, is that as good as I thought it was? And a lot of the students, when we were 18 at this college, you have three... You've written three or four songs. You don't want any input from anyone else. These are my... What do you mean? that This is how they are. This is my work. And his lesson would often be... Don't be precious. Write the song, move on to the next one, come back to it in four months, see where it's at. If you've got an idea for a chorus, make that melody your verse and then write a chorus melody that trumps that again. You know, it's all of these practices that are... Dig, dig, dig. The song doesn't exist until it's out in the public. So the song doesn't isn't finished at any point. When you're writing songs, do you think in terms of people listening to them or you playing them live? Mm-hmm. I know, you've got a mouthful of... <laughs> it's amazing. Taboule yeah. or Kibe or... Um, once the record is released, really, I only ever hear my own songs when I'm performing them live. I'm very rarely putting them on myself. I'm very rarely... If it were to come on the radio, I might leave it on as a kind of like, oh, this is cool, but there's a good chance I might turn it off. Um, and, of course, people find it hilarious to play it in pubs when you walk in and kind of snigger. Of course. Um, so... I always think about the live aspect. I find it really hard to imagine someone putting my record on. I have to ask you, one of your um, one of your tracks, uh, Listen to the Man, the video, you have Surrey and McKellen in it, who's kind of pushing you out the way so he can perform. How did you get Ian McKellen on the video of Listen to the Man? There's a director that I work with a lot on the first record called Rob Brandon. I love Rob's mind. And I love, you know, I would come up with a really basic idea for a song and he'd run with it and come up with a whole you know, world around that idea. So for that song, all I said was, I'd love it if I wasn't singing the song. So his original idea was, well, why don't we build an animatronic Venus flytrap and it will keep interrupting you, right? And I was like, that sounds amazing. What, kind of like Little Shop of Horrors. Exactly. And so like, I was like, I'm so up for that. And then he came back to me a week or two later. He was like, mate, 
we just can't afford to do it. Like the budget that we've been given, we cannot make this thing work, you know? But we can get one of the greatest theatrical actors of our time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so then he said, um, just leave it with me. And I got a call. I was in a meeting in New York and I got a call and I said, hello, mate, do you mind if I ring you back? And he said, would you just quickly, how would you feel about having Ian McKellen in the video? And I kind of just told him to fuck off, like, stop wasting my time. I'm just in this meeting. I'll talk to you in a bit. And it, sure enough, he was like, honestly, I mean, we can do it. He's kind of up for it. Are you? And I was like, mate, if we can do it, that's incredible. And we got there on the day we'd rented this studio. And it was a masterclass from... Ian, I'm going to say Ian McKellen. It feels odd just calling him Ian. Um, I think you can call him Ian. You've worked with him. Yeah. But there was this masterclass in grace and kind of, there's no doubt he walks into a room, especially a a studio where he knows there's cameras and everything, where he knows everyone knows his work and what he's done and what he's able to do. But there was no, not at one point, did you see ego or... I was very young still. I mean, I still am young, but it was like, it was a great thing for me to see that early on of like, wow, this guy. But you you give a fabulous performance in it as well, looking just slightly bemused that this bloke keeps muscling his way in to sing your <laughs> yeah. song. There's a stop in the video. We go, what, what are you doing? You're acting with Ian McKellen and you do it very nicely indeed. <laughs> yeah, I think though that that relies on the fact that all I have to do is act confused and I probably was a bit confused on the day of like how has this all happened dessert what have you got what have (laughs) Green Valley sent you for dessert already dived in I've already had a piece sorry I just couldn't stop so you've got baklava which is lots of layers of syrup crusted phyllo equivalent of phyllo with nuts and honey and I've got something I know you like which is a creme brulee oh, you're a bit of a yeah, creme brulee yeah I love I, a creme I could, brulee they didn't have one on the on the on the menu mate so I've had to go the mine's a raspberry raspberry creme brulee um do they come to you and say George what do you want on the the menu for this tour halfway through a tour everyone's missing home a bit you might say oh look we've got a gig on Sunday could we do a roast you know, and that, you know, everyone's going to be like, oh, roast. It's like a little slice of home. We'll do that kind of thing, you know. But no, I don't have any. Haven't you been working think... on your roast dinner method? <laughs> trying to trying to get your roast potatoes right? I went through a phase where I was doing it every Sunday. Yeah, I loved it. Because we didn't really, we had a roast at home, but it was often a nut roast. Or I remember the first time I remember, I recall having a roast dinner was at a girlfriend of mine's when I was like 16. And she had her extended family round, which we never really had a close extended family to Hartford. And it was just this feast. And I was like, what's the occasion? And she was just like, it's just Sunday. <laughs> this is what we do. <laughs> I was like, oh my God. Uh, what's your method for roast potatoes? Well, I started doing it all just in the same tray. And so you add bits at different times, if that makes sense. So it's all yeah, yeah. with the chicken and I keep checking on it and drizzling everything back over itself. What I love doing, which only did the last kind of three or four times, was then taking the chicken and put just putting it on the lowest heat until I went to bed, essentially. And then like, yeah, I'd have it for the next roast the next week. I'd have this beautiful stock or I'd make something else out of it. I really enjoyed doing that. I'm not the best cook, but I enjoy doing it. As long as there's a recipe, I'm very like, if it says two tablespoons, best believe 
that's going to be level on the tablespoon <laughs> measure. And yeah, that's how I, then I know I can't go wrong. Now, as we're heading towards the end of our, our lunch, uh, the baklava's good, clearly, because I can see you shuffling it away. Um, I, I had to ask you about one plan that you had in lockdown, which was that you were intending to go into a darkened room, a completely darkened room, with eight pints of water and a bucket <laughs> for, for 48 hours. What in God's name were you thinking? <laughs> this is a story which I heard, you know, anyone should go and listen to on an episode of Phone a Friend called Namaste at Home, where I yeah. told Ollie... It's this great. Is what you should, everybody should listen to this. But this is Ollie winding me up because he's very, like he said eight pints of water. There was... There was going to be a fair bit more water. I had a bit more of a plan around that. And I don't necessarily know if the bucket was a, a serious suggestion. But I had it in my head that I wanted to do a day of no screens. And I've done that before in the past. And if you do it for 24 hours, I just find it's unbelievably, for me, relaxing. Because there's a kind of a habitual relationship, I should say, with me and my phone of... Often I don't know that I'm checking it, but I am. That was the plan. And then I thought, well, why don't you take it a step further and see what it's like if you strip yourself of most of your senses for however long? And my thinking behind all of this is that my second record, I focused a lot on writing songs about escape and dreaming and this whole thing you confront, instead of confronting something, go away. You know, there's this world inside your imagination you can go and enjoy it doesn't even need to be in your imagination. Physically take yourself away somewhere, if possible. And what I had to learn the hard way was that actually, long term, the thing that is more beneficial for me is to confront whatever is going on in my head. Anyway, safe to say I decided against it at the last minute and thought, no, George, don't. I did do the day without screens, but just I enjoyed natural, you know, natural light and um, I read and I sang and I played guitar all day. It was really good. Well, I, I have to say... I. I do hope that lockdown continues in that general chilled style. Yeah. And I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down with me and stay in for lunch. Do you see how I worked in the title of the podcast? <laughs> yeah, I like there? that. <laughs> have you cleared the back level? Have you got loads of stuff for the fridge from Green There's Valley? There's plenty for the fridge, yeah, which I'm going to enjoy. I'll enjoy it tonight as well, yeah. But thank you very much for this. I've really enjoyed it and I appreciate it a lot. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. And I hope, you know, when uh, some form of normality returns, we could possibly meet in real life. That would be a joy. Absolutely. I would love that. Wasn't that just a joy? And I like to think I've kept George's meals for the next week in lockdown a bit more varied than his batch cooking. And if you live in London and are interested in trying what we ate for yourself, George's lunch came from Green Valley via Deliveroo with two outlets in the centre of town and mine came from the marvellous Limette Bistro in West Dulwich. We do spoil you, don't we? If that wasn't enough, you can find a heap more episodes from Series 1 and 2 wherever you get your podcasts. And if you could give us a five-star review and share us, we'd be very grateful. For not just because it makes us feel better about ourselves, but because it helps other people to find the pod. Out to Lunch is a Something Else and Jay Rayner production. The music was written, arranged and performed by me, Jay Rayner, and Robert Rickenberg. The mix engineer was Josh Gibbs. The assistant producer was Rosie Marotra. The producer is Selena Reem, and the executive producer is Darby Doris. Additional production is from Steve Ackerman. Next time, I'll be in for lunch 
with the mind behind Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz and Baby Driver. It's director Edgar Wright. Having made Shaun of the Dead, it's quite ironic to walk around and recreate my own movie. (laughs) 